Well, we're in Luke 18 today, Luke chapter 18, as we bring this series of parables in Luke to a close. As you're turning to Luke 18, let me get us started by thinking about the fact that I think we all want to be accepted. We all want to be approved in one way or another. This is just part of life. You apply to a college, and hopefully a month or two later, you get a letter in the mail, and it says, congratulations, you've been accepted. Or you interview for a job, and then hopefully you get an email sometime after that says, we'd like to offer you the position. Or a young man proposes to a woman that he'd like to marry, And hopefully she says yes. And a few years later, that couple may apply for a home mortgage. And there's some sigh of relief when they hear, you have been approved. And it's not just the big things in life. Someone in the family makes a new recipe of brownies. And that person wants everyone in the family to try them. Try it. What do you think? Do you like them? doesn't have to be the best brownie ever, but hopefully it's good enough for us all to enjoy this evening. Now, some would abandon that path, thinking that it's a fool's errand to get approval from anyone. So they say they don't care anymore what anyone thinks of them. But inevitably, the new path they're on, their new project is one of self-justification. It's now according to their own rules, their criteria, their own self-assessment, and their own approval of themselves. As Stuart Smalley said, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. We may have different metrics for measuring success. We may have different areas of of life that we want to have approved. We might have different audiences who we would like to get approval from. But it's within us to long for approval and acceptance and being justified. Of course, the most important assessment that we'll ever face is the one not before mom and dad, not before our kids, not before our bosses, not before teachers, but one we face before God. What does God think of me? Where do I stand before God? That's the most important and really most sobering matter. We saw it last week in the parable of the rich man in Lazarus. This is a sobering, important matter because it's permanent, final, forever, eternal. And it's serious and sobering because, well, God knows us. He knows us from the inside out. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So there's no deceiving him. There's no winging it. There's no fudging on the resume. There's no use trying to show him only the good and holding back the bad. He knows it all. So what will he say when we appear before him in eternity? And can we know that now? Can we know it now? I'd like to know it now. I don't like waiting for the verdict. I don't like waiting for the news that could be good or could be bad. I want it now. Can we know now before God says, depart from me, I never knew you, or 
Well done, my servant. Welcome into the joy of your master. Or can we at least learn of the kind of person that God approves, that God will accept? Again, we saw something of that in last week's parable, but we see it this week with crystal clarity, without any bit of ambiguity. Today we come to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. And in many ways, this parable summarizes and puts a finer point on many things that we've been learning in this series. And really, it's an excellent summary of Luke's whole message about Jesus and the gospel. So let's read it. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, verse 9 introduces the parable to us. Let's start there. Introducing the parable. Luke, the author, tells us who this parable is for, why Jesus told it, and what it's about. It's for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Not all parables begin with such a, an explicit stated purpose. Actually, only a few do, but this is one of them. And so we learn from it that the issue at stake and what the parable will paint in vivid colors is an issue of trust. What does one trust in? Do you trust in yourself to get you to God? Can you trust in your own righteousness to stand before the Lord? What will you claim and lean upon on that day? And what inevitably goes hand in hand with trusting in your own righteousness, according to this, is treating others with contempt. Comparing yourself with others and looking down on those who seem to be lesser. Now we have to be careful with a preface to the parable like we have in verse 9 that some of us don't think that this doesn't apply to me. I know there's a double negative there. Don't think this doesn't apply to you. Let, let me spell this out. On the one hand, this parable paints a stark picture, a black and white picture. We know from our first read of the parable that it ends with two men in two different conditions, two different standings before God. Like the parable last week, 
It's bleak. It's heaven or hell. Nothing in between. So this week, these guys are not yet in heaven or hell, but it's a matter of heaven and hell. One is heaven bound, the other is hell bound. And so we need to ask, which one am I? Because you're not in between. You're not a third category. On the other hand, this is a parable for those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. And we all do that to an extent. Even Christians who got hold of the biblical gospel. Every Christian struggles to live in the full light of our finished, settled justification that's by grace alone. Every Christian is tempted to and sometimes gives in to commending our own good deeds to God as if he should do something because we have done something. Every Christian, at times, mistakenly feels more or less loved by God in accordance with how I've done yesterday or this last week. How am I doing with my Bible study and prayer? How am I doing with witnessing? How am I doing with my tongue? We feel like the Lord's countenance frowns and smiles according to our own obedience. That's all of us. As Martin Luther taught us, we are all hopelessly meritorious. Hopelessly meritorious, trusting in our merit, our work, our good deeds. And we will spend the rest of our lives rooting out that meritoriousness. So here's my point. This is a parable for all of us. A special designation, but we all need it. It's a parable for those who need to get saved, to become a Christian, to get grace for the very first time. And it's a parable for every Christian who needs to keep fighting off any confidence that they would put in the flesh. That's introducing the parable. On to the parable itself, and there we see three groups of contrasts. Three groups of contrast. Three P words will help us think about it. First, there are two different people. Two different people. We're introduced to them in verse 10. A Pharisee and a tax collector. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you know what a Pharisee and a tax collector are. But let me shake that up a little bit. You see, because if you're used to reading the Bible and used to being in church services like this and hearing the Bible taught, your first instinct is that Pharisees are bad guys. They're the bad guys. They're the ones who are against Jesus. They're the ones that eventually hand him over to Rome to be crucified. We know that there's a reason we have this word in the English language, pharisaical. Doesn't even have to be religious people who are pharisaical. They're, they're self-righteous, they're law keepers, they're legalistic, they're hypocritical. Now there's good reason for the reputation that the Pharisees have gotten. We've gotten that understanding of the Pharisees in no small part from Jesus' critique of the Pharisees. But here's the thing. The street-level perception of the Pharisees in Jesus' day was not that they were the bad guys. They were the good guys. They were admirable. 
They were respectable. They were considered the real deal. They are the ones who treated their faith with the kind of seriousness that it deserves. They're the ones we all should be like. We're the hypocrites, not them. They're actually doing it. They were the real adults in the room. So who is right with God? If we're dealing with that kind of question, who is good with God? Most people in Jerusalem in the first century would have had Pharisees atop of their list above any other class or kind of people. Keep that in mind. And keep in mind when we hear tax collector, this is not just an IRS agent. None of us like to pay taxes. All of us would get a little nervous to get a letter in the mail from the IRS saying we're about to be audited. But tax collecting as a system in first century Rome was something otherworldly. It was an inherently corrupt system. You see, a tax collector had agreed with Rome to collect the taxes in a certain geographic district. And all Rome cared about was that the tax collecting got done, that the tax collector brought the agreed amount to Rome. As for the personal compensation of the tax collector, that's whatever they took in extra, other than what Rome required. And they could take as much as they could get away with. So the word for this is extortion. They were extortionist. Imagine a traffic cop of the Albuquerque Police Department getting his salary or her salary from not only writing tickets, as many tickets as they want to give, but writing tickets for any amount they choose to write them for. I mean, you just give up driving. You wouldn't even bother on the streets with that kind of system. And that's what it was like in Rome. Taxes would vary widely from one area to another, from one tax man to another. And Rome didn't care about any of it any of it as long as there was generally some peace and as long as Rome got its money. These were bad guys. They were hated. They were corrupt. They they were famously untrustworthy. Tax collectors were not permitted to be witnesses in a court of law. Their testimony was just considered surely false, untrustworthy. Now, if you're Jewish in these days... In your promised land, technically, but Rome is the government, right? Rome has occupied your promised land. Then Rome is bad, and tax collectors are the means through which Rome is funded. They're funding your enemies. They're funding a plan that's against the promises of God, they might say. And add one more layer of complexity. Imagine a tax collector who is Jewish, like this tax collector probably was. He went to the temple to pray. So this is not just a guy who's sided with Rome. He's a a brother, a Jew, who should know better. He's a traitor, and he has gone against and betrayed and stolen from his brothers and sisters. 
Well, a Pharisee and a tax collector go to the temple to pray. A good guy and a bad guy go to the temple to pray. Which one should feel confident about their approach to God? Which one will God listen to? Which one has a right standing before God? Again, the perception on the street would have been clear and unanimous. The Pharisee is good with God doing what he's supposed to be doing, and the tax collector shouldn't even be there. What gives him the right to show up now? I mean, after all, doesn't Psalm 24 say, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will climb up Jerusalem and go to the temple? Who can enter into God's presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, he will receive the blessing of the Lord. It sounds like Psalm 24 sides with the Pharisee and condemns the tax collector. And yet, if you've been hearing Jesus teach in recent days in the context of Luke 18 and what came before, well, you should be wondering where this parable's going. He's done some theological jujitsu to shock people out of their socks a few times already with this kind of thing. He might be up to it again, and he is, but that will only further shock those first listeners. He's been doing it. The rich man and Lazarus, you'd expect this one's in with God, and he's out. And you'd expect this one's not good with God, but he's in. The, the parable of the prodigal sons in chapter 15. Sons, plural. Yeah, there was the wayward son who left and squandered his father's inheritance with wild living. Remember, he came back home. The father welcomed him and threw a big party. But it was the older brother that at the end of the story was outside the party. You throw a party for him? I've never squandered your money. I've never done this. I've been good. I've been here. And he's outside while the younger son is brought in. On and on it goes. I could give you example after example in either direction from our parable. And the Pharisee and the tax collector is just another one of these that we suspect even from the beginning, will likely follow suit. It'll be a surprise. There'll be a reversal. But that should be shocking to the first century hearers. So two different people. Secondly, two different prayers. Two different prayers. We have the Pharisee's prayer where he was standing by himself, it says, in verse 11. That's the ESV, standing by himself. Now, if you have a New American Standard, you'll see there that it says he prayed to himself. If you have an NIV, you'll see there that it says he prayed about himself. Well, what's the deal with these different prepositions? Well, in the Greek, there's a purposely vague preposition that can be translated variously, and I suspect it's D, all of the above. It's a wordplay. This guy prayed apart from everyone else. They're over there. He's here. He's better. He's different. But this guy prayed, as we'll see, about himself. 
And it's as it were that he was practically praying to himself since it was so self-congratulatory. He begins with just a brief word of thanks to God, but immediately pulls out his religious resume and begins running through it. He looks in the mirror. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The theme was himself. After only a brief word of thanks to God, the emphasis is I, 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 I. Five times he says I. The focus was on externals. He's focusing on what he did or didn't do. He's not focusing on heart issues, motives. He's focusing on externals. His strategy, notice, was comparative. He compares himself to others. Of course, this is Luke's introduction to the parable. This is for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here it is in action. Thank God I'm not like that guy. And his standard was, in some ways, above and beyond what God actually commanded in the Bible. He is literally holier than thou. Holier than God. Because the Mosaic law required just one fast per year. And this man, he does a hundred times more than that. The Mosaic law required tithing, giving a tenth, yes. But it didn't require tithing on your tithing. It didn't require tithing on every single little thing. This guy, if someone gives him an apple, he'd cut it into ten sections and give one of those to the poor. Or as Jesus put it in Luke 11, they tithe on their mint and rue and herb while they neglect justice and love. J.C. Ryle, the old bishop of Liverpool, he said of this man's prayer that it exhibits no sense of sin or need. It contains no confession and no petition, no acknowledgement of guilt or emptiness, no supplication for mercy and grace. It is a mere boasting recital of fancied merits. In short, it hardly to be, deserves to be called a prayer at all. Let me tell you a little story, a self-incriminating story and self-incriminating on multiple levels. Uh, many years ago, we did a small vacation in Durango, and at some point, I got pulled over and got a speeding ticket, which wasn't the worst of it. Even worse than getting the speeding ticket was that this was one of those deals where you couldn't mail it in, you couldn't email it, you couldn't send it in electronically. I had to show up. I had to go to court back in Durango later on. So I thought, well, make the most of it, I brought Autumn, our oldest daughter. She was homeschooled back then. Yeah, this is school, right? Bring them to court. They'll see court. How about that? <laughs> We're the only ones that did that kind of thing. Thought we'd make a day of it. All right, we went to Durango. I'm in the courtroom waiting my slot and watching others go before the judge and really botch it. I mean, really get it wrong. I mean, these 
people are, are they're short of, um, they're not dealing with a whole enchilada. They're, stuff like that. I mean, you know, you're just thinking, why would you have a wad of gum when you're talking to the judge? And why would you show up late? And why would you wear your pants like that? And your hat's on backwards. I mean, lose the hat or at least turn it frontward. It just, I was just laughing. I was just thinking, boy, boy, these people, these people. And here I am. I showed up in khakis. I know how to do this. You're nice to the judge. You know, you'll probably have to pay a fine, maybe a reduced fine, but that's it. So I was kind of doing this with my daughter. Watch this. You see what they're doing? Don't do that. Watch this. And it was going well until the judge said, wait, were you driving up Venice when you got this ticket? Isn't that uphill? And he started laying into me. He started laying into me. He started laying into me in front of my daughter. I felt smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was reminded, yeah, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, right? The Lord is good every now and then. Just show us little bits like that. Like, oh, you think you're something? You think you're better than? You're not. Notice the tax collector's prayer. He also was standing far off, verse 13. They're both standing at a distance, but for very different reasons. The the Pharisee stands far off because he's better than everyone else, and the tax collector stands far off because of his sense of unworth. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, what's usually reserved for the deepest of grief, like when family die beat his breast. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In fact, he said, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what we find in the Greek. There's a definite article. Not a sinner, the sinner. Because as far as he's concerned, he's the only sinner, the only sinner that matters before God. The tax collector asked for mercy because that's That's what he needed. That's all he could ask for. He pleaded on the basis of God's mercy because that's, that's his one thing to plead. He doesn't have anything else. He doesn't have anything to commend. He referred to none of his good deeds if he had any at all to offer because he knew he had nothing to bring to the table. Maybe he knew of Isaiah 64 verse 6. That all of our righteous deeds, righteous deeds, are as filthy rags before God. We bring nothing to the table. And we have to come to the end of ourselves before we'll ever see our need for mercy and ask for it like this. But when we come to the end of ourselves, when we realize that we have nothing good to commend to God, when we have nothing to stand on that's our own doing, then we are prime candidates for his grace. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous, those who think themselves righteous. No, he's like a physician, and physicians are for the sick. The well don't go to physicians They're well. Jesus came for those who know that they're sick and sore and desperate 
and needy, those who are ready to pray. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful. Here's another interesting thing about what's going on in the Greek. This isn't the usual word for mercy. And just a, a little bit later from this, we'll read of a blind Bartimaeus who says, Son of David, be merciful to me. That's the typical word for mercy. Help me. Fix me. But this word, be merciful to me, in the parable, it literally means make atonement for sin. It means make propitiation for me. Of course, that looks back to the Old Testament sacrifices where the priest poured out the blood of the sacrificed animal on the mercy seat as a symbol of covering sin. And of course, it also points ahead to what's coming later on in Luke, the culmination of the story, the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. We're supposed to read Luke 18 and every other chapter in Luke knowing where it's going, reading this spot with the end in mind. And we know what Jesus is going to do on that cross is indeed a propitiation it is the covering of sin. Hebrews 2 verse 17 says that Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people. Same word. He had mercy on them. He covered their sins. His blood didn't symbolize a covering. It covered forever. Which leads me back to Psalm 24. Remember that pesky Psalm 24, which sounded like it sided more with the approach of the Pharisee and seemed like the tax collector's approach was presumptuous? Who gets to enter into God's presence? Psalm 24 says, clean hands, pure heart, no lying. But if you read on in Psalm 24, it gets messianic. We read the very words that Handel took and applied to his famous Messiah. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in, may enter the temple. Jesus alone then was the one who could ascend that holy hill with clean hands, pure heart, no lying. He was perfect and blameless. And he made sacrifice. And he will bring us in if we believe in him. Which leads thirdly to two different positions. Two different positions. Two different positions before God. Two different standings before him. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Again, another surprise to many listening. Another reversal story. Jesus sounds like he's doing something new, but he wasn't. It's always the way God has worked. God has always humbled the exalted and exalted the humble. And here it says that this man was justified. Another technical word. It's a legal term. It's the judge declaring a sentence. In this case, it's a 
sentence, a declaration of approval. It literally means declared righteous. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house declared righteous by God. What? And apparently he was justified, declared to be righteous by God, not because he was righteous. He didn't improve. He didn't change things just yet. No, he was declared to be righteous on account of God's mercy and grace, which was received through faith, which was expressed in this humble little prayer. Maybe later you'd want to go back and read Romans 3. Romans 3 is a passage that expounds many of these themes at a greater level. It takes that word justified and unpacks it even more. Paul there argues that no one is justified by doing the law, by obeying, by keeping. You can't. No, instead the law was given so that we would know we need a different kind of justification. In the law, no one will be justified. But we are justified by grace, Paul says, as a gift Paul says, it's through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, he says, whom God put forth as a propitiation, as a mercy seat, as a covering to be received by faith. And this is how, by the way, God is just and the justifier. How does he justify sinners? How does he declare sinners to be righteous? Well, it's because he is just and Jesus was righteous on our behalf. Now, you don't have to understand all those nuances to become a Christian, but you do have to understand the most basic concept behind all that, again, expressed in those simple but profound words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's nothing magical in those words. Some people treat prayer that way. Say this prayer and something will happen. The prayer of Jabez. Maybe if I say the prayer of Jabez every morning when I wake up, there'll be some power in prayer. Is there power in prayer? Well, there's power in praying to a powerful God. Our prayers aren't powerful. I mean, we're just tapping into God's power. It's, it's, it's his power to dispense according to his will. And some also talk of the Lord's, I'm sorry, the sinner's prayer. Have you heard of that? The sinner's prayer. This is, in some church circles, this is how you get someone to become a Christian. You say, let me tell you about the sinner's prayer. Repeat this after me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I grew up in that kind of tradition, and it wasn't easy. Because I knew growing up as a teenager that I wasn't a Christian. I just knew it. I knew that Christians were supposed to be different. And I lived and acted like and felt like all my lost friends. Only difference was that I went to church on Sunday mornings. And this difference. I just kept praying this sinner's prayer. Apparently it didn't click. It didn't work for me. So I prayed again and prayed again. If I came across a different version of it, I thought, well, maybe that one is the one that works, and I've gotten some bad ones before. I'll pray that one. 
If I was about to take off in a plane, pray the prayer right before, just in case. I don't know. For years, I was under that kind of torment. And then one day, my junior year of high school, I was reading 1 John again, a book of the Bible which describes what Christians look like, how they're changed. And I began to see again, I'm not this. That's not me. And I was desperate, and I actually cried out, God, you're just going to have to save me. I don't know. I don't know. I'm throwing myself at your mercy. Just save me. I think that's when the Lord saved me. I think that was the, the real sinner's prayer. I think every attempt before that was me trusting in a formula, putting my faith in certain words. That's not how it works. We're putting our words to work expressing what we believe and trust to be true about ourselves and about Jesus. You can word it however you want. This one will be just fine. God be merciful to me, a sinner. J.C. Ryle, again, he said, True faith is but laying hold of a Savior's hand. It brings with it nothing to Christ but a sinful man's soul. It gives nothing, contributes nothing, pays nothing, performs nothing. It only receives, takes, accepts, grasps, and embraces the glorious gift of justification which Christ bestows. Any sinner can get in on that. No one in this room is too far gone to be reached by God's grace. The tax collector was saved. He went home justified that day. Any sinner can get in on this. And get this, even a Pharisee can get in on this. Now the Pharisee in our parable didn't seem to. But another Pharisee in the Bible named Saul or Paul, he was a legit Pharisee. I mean, he was a full-blown Pharisee. He would have been the kind to say, I thank you, God, that I am not like them. In fact, in Philippians 3, he tells the story. He says, if anyone had reason to boast or have confidence in their religious resume, it was me. And he goes through his credentials. And he says, but I had to throw that away. I had to treat that as rubbish, he says. And I had to instead think of a righteousness that is not my own. That's what he says. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Rule keepers, moral people, those of you who would have come in saying, I think I'm okay with God because I'm pretty good. I'm better than others. At least I'm better than them. There is room for you to come in today. You, like the Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee, can come to see that you have nothing to stand on. You have no leg to stand on before God. You must rest in what Christ has done alone.
Two different people, two different prayers, two different positions before God. Which one are you? I hope today it becomes a day of salvation for you. It can be settled today. This man went to the temple hellbound, and he left justified. Settled forever. The verdict in now. You say, how is that? I mean, the report card's not done. He's got more life to live. How can God say, righteous, settled? Because it's settled not on what the man did. It's settled on who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And remember, Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And he rose on the third day. So today, your account before God can forever be settled, and you can live in that light. Christian, we are to live in that light. We are to never get over this. We're to never tire about this theme. We're to never graduate from the gospel. King David prayed, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And many of us today, Christians, we should be praying the same thing, maybe even paraphrasing David and saying, Lord, restore unto me the awe of my salvation. Restore unto me the wonder of salvation, the disbelief. Maybe you think that you used to be tax collector material, and you're not any longer. So, I mean, yeah, it's a given. You're forgiven. It's settled. That's great. What are we having for lunch? This isn't the kind of thing we can yawn at if we get it. This is why we sing week in and week out. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And can it be that I would have an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? You've got to be kidding me. That should be a chorus that we insert in Charles Wesley's hymn. You gotta be kidding me. I love to tell the story. It'll be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. This will be the theme of heaven's worship for all eternity and will never tire. This is the message that every Christian has been tasked to bring to a lost world. In confused world. We don't hold out to the world a, a message of improvement, of bits of wisdom and observation about, you know, growth and self-esteem. We got something way better than that. We got something eternal. We got something for sinners. We got something that will declare them righteous on account of what Jesus did. Why do we hold that back? Why are we ashamed of that? Why are we shy about that? And this is why every Sunday, as Drew mentioned earlier, that we always have a confession of sin as part of what we do in our worship service. Whether it's song or a prayer or a reading, we confess together. Because we need to just keep reviewing the same facts, the gospel facts. We keep preaching to ourselves. We keep praying 
confession of our sin. Remember, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, four different kinds of prayers. Don't be a one-trick pony. Pray confession. You say, well, I'm not sure if I, if I covered everything that I did wrong yesterday. I assure you, you didn't. So just summarize it today. Just summarize it today. Lord, I thank you that me, a sinner, can be forgiven by your amazing grace. Now I have some things to ask for your help for. That principle that was stated in the second half of verse 14 is one for becoming a Christian and it's one for living out the Christian life. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See what that means? It means that God demands humility for us to embrace the gospel, but then that gospel produces more humility. This amazing grace changes us. Changes us from the inside out, not not the outside in, as Tim Keller unpacks in his helpful message on this same passage. As Christians... We grow, right? We know that. We're supposed to grow in Christ-likeness, but that is not a growth that feels like success. It is actually growing low. The more we actually see more of our Savior's grace and glory, the more we will understand our need. And it just feeds into itself, and we just keep growing in grace and growing in grace. Wouldn't it be horribly ironic if any of us here today would come away from a passage like this saying, yeah, God, I thank you that I'm not like one of those Pharisees. I'm not one of the Pharisees. I'm more like the tax lawyer. Thank God I am not like those rule-following, legalistic, hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees. We never come to that point. You don't get it if that's what you'd say. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And for those who have said that, and for those for whom it is true that you are justified, then hear this from Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. Go your way. Eat your bread, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. He's approved it in Jesus because of him as a gift. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how freeing this glorious gospel is. It it frees us from guilt and it frees us from doubt and frees us from wondering and frees us from hand-wringing and and striving. It frees us from a self-focus. It frees us from trying to justify ourselves. It frees us from comparisons with others and treating others with contempt and looking down on others. This gospel frees us to speak and to celebrate in worship. It frees us to grow low. So free us. Grow us in the freedom of the gospel, even now, 
as we confess that there is no hope but in the blood, uh, in nothing but the blood of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.